Vice Nation. Greetings and salutations, Device Nation. You're home for the greatest show on earth, and we know that show is medical device sales with ideas, stories, and interviews to help take you from good to great. I hope you're having a great day. Hope you had a great week. I know I did. This is Kevin Brown, your voice of P-Waves in times of rogue waves. I absolutely love this time of year. I get up in the morning, that crisp chill. I want to get out and just roll around in the yard with my dog, uh, much to the chagrin of my neighbors. Hiking, love that this time of year. My wife and I have hiked parts of the AT, the Appalachian Trail. Uh, She said she'd be glad to do the whole thing with me if there was a Marriott at the end of each day's stroll. Well, that's not going to happen. We were hiking a particular trail today, and every 150 yards was a sign with a quote on it about the wilderness. Uh, I fully expected to come around a bend in the trail and to see that famous Thoreau quote, in wilderness is the preservation of the world, on a flashing billboard. This same trail had a sign for every possible plant species along this thing. Uh, including one, and I'm not making this up, pointing out a dead tree. (laughs) Somewhere, somehow, there just had to have been grant money involved. So here is a crazy story for you. One time, my wife and I went on a hike in the Panthertown Valley area of North Carolina, widely regarded as the Yosemite of the East. If you like waterfalls and like to see amazing wilderness on the East Coast, that's the place to go. We got deep in there, and we got into this weird open area. There was nobody there, uh, but there was these really strange lean-to shelters. And as I was looking around at this area, I literally heard these whispering voices. And I am not crazy. I don't hear these voices in my head all the time. But I heard these whispering voices like something out of an episode of Lost. Now, I did not want to alarm the missus, so I kept my mouth shut until we got to the truck. And I'm not kidding you. As soon as I closed the door, she looked at me and said, did you hear voices? back in that area we were in that was kind of bizarre. My blood literally ran cold. Suddenly, a billboard line trail pointing out every dead tree seemed like a far more attractive proposition. I felt like I passed my cardiac stress test there and then. Well, our guest today can give you a stress test. He can also give you an LVAD. He can give you a heart transplant. Heck, he can even replace your heart with an artificial one if you need, and has written an amazing book about his life story called Heart to Beat. And of course, we are talking about Dr. Brian Lima, Director of Heart Transplantation and Attending Surgeon at North Shore University Hospital in Long Island, former Duke Chief Resident, Cleveland Clinic Surgery Fellow, just elected Top Doctor of the Year by the International Association of Top Professionals. So thankful to have you on the show, sir. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, Dr. Lima, I'm so thankful to have you on Device Nation. You are compiling quite the body of work in the cardiothoracic surgery space. And I look forward to asking you about that. Your number one Amazon best-selling book, Heart to Beat. Uh, your device, the HeartMate 3, I want to talk about that. But first, let's go back. Tell me about growing up as the son of Cuban immigrants and how did that put you onto a path in medicine? 
I think it's a classic, you know, uh, what the when you think of the American dream, what that represents. Uh, I think uh, my story embodies that to a T. I would say in that I learned very, very early on from my parents who had to, you know, work really, really hard, um, uh, just just to barely scrape by um, to uh, to survive. That hard work is the solution. That no matter what your starting point is. Um, whatever your socioeconomic status uh, is, you know, we didn't speak English at home. I had no professional role models. You know, my mother had a high school education. My dad worked in a factory. So, but they taught me that if you work hard enough, that that's at the end of the day going to uh, go further than talent or, or or natural God-given ability. So that's what really, that was the the take-home message for me that sunk in pretty pretty deeply and uh that's how i was able to take that uh use you know steer it towards my passion and in, in, in science and eventually you know medicine and you know then that further kind of honed down to heart surgery um but i had to work really 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 hard um brute force uh bare knuckle strategies uh, uh that i talk about in the book but um it paid off. Um, it wasn't easy. I don't sugarcoat that either, but it's a process and you have to be willing to um, suffer through some pain and suffering. And unfortunately, it's just part of it. There's no easy straight line to success. It's just the way it goes. You know, on that path there, and this is kind of a bizarre question, but uh, you have quite the CV track record on scoring ridiculously high on tests. And there was a lot of that going on to get you to where you are now. Dean's List at Cornell, National Scholar Award, valedictorian at your high school, and then several awards for the highest exam score at the Cleveland Clinic. Uh, any advice on that, uh, at the assimilation of large amounts of information and then being able to to put it out in a in a successful way on a test. Yeah, so you know what worked for me, and not to say that it's going to work for everybody, but um, and I I kind of um, I think the way I stumbled upon it was that uh, you know there were sometimes you know there was a random teacher here and there that would say, okay, you know I'm going to let you guys bring in a cheat sheet, and you're going to you know you only one piece of paper, and you got to write it, you know whatever you want to put down on that piece of paper, but that's you know so I took that to heart and actually. The exercise of going through and writing down uh, in like this sort of microscript, like as much as you could possibly cram in, in distilling the information down, rereading through the whether it's the textbook or lecture notes, et cetera, et cetera. Somehow that mental process of doing that and then rereading that, for whatever reason, it worked really, really well for me. I developed like a shorthand and I could you know, I would summarize, you know, in medical school, it came down to summarizing like whole textbooks into like 20 typed, you know, micros, you know, font pages. And um, that was kind of my process. The other thing was understanding the material. Um, if, it, if you go about it as you're just memorizing a bunch of stuff, you know, written out, in, you know, in a, in a textbook, Versus really being able to understand it to the point where you could teach it back to somebody else, you know, in whatever concept and whatever field it is, that's where you really retain the material, I found. And I, I learned that in college where, you know, I tried to kind of use just my rote memorization to, to, you know, do well on an exam and realize that when the exam tried to see how well you could apply 
the knowledge, not just, you know, spit back out, regurgitate what you, you know, memorized. That's what I was like, oh, okay, there's a whole other level to this. And it wasn't until I embraced that that I was able to actually excel at the higher, you know, academic levels. We've had a lot of surgeons on the show that were Duke Medical School alumni, and I'm just curious, uh, what was your experience there? And, and was that where you said, hey, I, I want to be a transplant surgeon? Yeah, so, uh, you know, Duke, um, I think for me, what really dominated the um, the persona, so to speak, of Duke for me, whether it was medical school or surgery, was actually the surgery department. You know, Dr. Sabiston was the chair of surgery there for, you know, 30 years. And, you know, his textbook of surgery was like considered the Bible of surgery. It's translated in like umpteen different languages, like on edition number 20 or whatever it is. And um, it was the ultimate like symbol. You know, he, he embodied gravitas and just intense attention to detail. And he created just one of the most, um, prestigious departments of surgery in the whole country, if not the world. And that trickled down to the medical students and kind of when we would get exposed to that environment. And it was intense. It was, you know, can't sugarcoat that either. It was, I mean, you had to really, really bring your A game all the time. And uh, you could do, you know, if you had a to-do list of 99 things and you missed one of them and you did everything else, you would get called out on that one thing you didn't do. And you just learn that every single, you know, minute detail counts and matters. And so that was the culture. And uh, I embraced it. I liked it. It Honestly, I talk about this in the book, too. It reminded me of high school football, like training camp and, you know, getting getting hollered at if you miss a play or a blocking assignment or whatever it was. That's what it felt like to me. Um, it wasn't necessarily motivation by fear. It was just motivation by kind of wanting to live up to and, and be like the, you know, the upper level residents or the uh, upper class, you know, medical students just living up to that legacy. And so... Uh, it was inspiring, but a lot of work. It was intense. It was an intense, you know, well, I was there 11 years. I was there for medical school and then my seven years of uh, general surgery. You ended up at the Cleveland Clinic in their heart program. 26 years, they've been ranked as the best in the nation with a number one spot this year. Uh, that had to be an amazing experience doing your uh, your fellowship there. Right. It was, uh, it, it was, I, I talk about it as like being a kid in a candy store. I mean, they do about twice as much heart surgery a year than the next closest place in the, in the United States. It's just a huge operation. It's, it's, it's a machine and on any given day, you know, 20 open hearts and you're getting to see the best of the best in each little niche area of heart surgery. And so I thought it was an amazing place to learn uh, from the best, get a lot of exposure to, you know, a lot of repetition to the different, whether it was, you know, quote, bread and butter heart surgery to the, you know, the zebras, the rare stuff that maybe in a career you'll see once, right? But here you would see it weekly. So um, that was really why I chose to train there. Um, and, you know, I had been at Duke and I loved Duke. I actually did a lot of, I was exposed to a lot of heart surgery at Duke during my time there. I just felt like, you know, seven, 11 years was good. <laughs> you know, I still bleed Duke blue and I, I, 
it was, you know, an, an opportunity to see how uh, other folks did it at a, at a very, another elite place. Um, and I, I cherish the time I had there because it, it was an unbelievable uh, training experience. So tell me about your practice now. What does it look like? Uh, what are you doing the most of and what do you, uh, what do you enjoy doing the most? Well, now, you know, in my, in heart surgery now, I do all you know, facets of heart surgery, but where my focus is, is in advanced heart failure. So, uh, I do heart transplant. Um, I do, uh, you know, artificial heart pumps or left ventricular assist devices. Uh, and then there's a whole array of, um, you know, temporary support devices that have come out over the last few years, uh, that have really been game changers for the field of how you manage, you know, the crashing and burning shock patients at, at various, you know, circulatory support strategies for the right ventricle, the left ventricle, for both, for, uh, and it's it's really been exciting to be uh, involved in it um, and seeing how it's just exploded. And, and uh, so, many, so many more patients that we can help now than we used to be able to. But that's really my niche. Uh, I was, you know, brought here, recruited to Long Island for Northwell Health to um, to start the first heart transplant program on Long Island, uh, an area that, you know, services about 8 million people. That was, you know, another uh, huge endeavor that uh, we've successfully accomplished and we're very proud of. And so that, that's, I'd say the predominant focus is that area of heart surgery for me now. As a transplant surgeon, it has to be kind of magical, right? Seeing a heartbeat on its own after being taken out of one person and transported hundreds of miles to your OR. Never gets old. That's, I mean, still by far my favorite, favorite operation. It's uh, it's amazing. It really, really is. Um, it's incredible that we could do that, and you know, we're also getting you know making more advances there and, and different ways to to preserve the heart, to be able to go further away, to um, use hearts that you know historically wouldn't have been able to use, but uh, new, new resuscitative technologies and uh, ex vivo perfusion, the so-called you know heart in a box uh, way to preserve the heart is, is really opening the doors for a lot of that. I saw your name attached to this device called the HeartMate 3. Tell me about it. That um, is the latest iteration of these left ventricular assist devices, these pumps that basically take over the work of the left side of the heart, the, you know, the main pumping chamber of the heart. And um, I was one of the principal investigators for uh, the Momentum 3 uh, trials, a multi-center trial. I was the PI at, uh, at Baylor in Dallas, uh, in Texas. And, um, this, this really was a landmark trial, you know, led to, F, you know, pretty quick FDA approval of this device. And, and what's really made this device, I would say, or, or the outcomes with this device very, very promising is that it, it, you know, for the first time we're starting to see data, you know, outcomes that rival, or approximate what we see with heart transplant, which is still, you know, the gold standard for um, folks with advanced heart failure. So this is really a huge leap forward for the field. You know, it's obviously because it's something you just take off the shelf, right? Uh, it leaves, you know, the potential to help that many more people, right? Instead of having to wait for a heart. So it's been a, an amazing uh, thing to see just how great um these outcomes have been and what we can offer patients now. I remember obscure things. I miss important things sometimes like anniversaries, but I'm working <laughs> on that. But I remember Barney Clark. Yeah. Yeah. Who received the first permanent artificial heart back in 1982. And I'm just curious, uh, what was it called? The Jarvik heart. Yeah. Tell me where we are on that technology and has it fared well under the scrutiny of long-term follow-up? So, you know, 
the total artificial heart where you actually, you know, take out someone's heart and basically put in an entire mechanical substitute for it. That technology has lagged, I would say, a little bit in that there is a total artificial heart that's available, but um, it's such a huge procedure relative to just putting in a, you know, assist device. But it is it is necessary, though, because I would say that all comers, um, I would say three quarters of folks that have advanced heart failure, it's really the left ventricle. That's the issue. It's the, the main pumping chamber. That's And so the left ventricular assist devices, which are pumps that you just attach to the heart, to the left ventricle, which, you know, in a, in a person who's never had heart surgery before, that's that takes me two hours to do with just the surgery part and the mopping up, et cetera. But not that, you know, crazy of a procedure. It's, it's pretty standard. Uh, but um, in that 20, 30 percent of patients that really it's the left and the right side of the heart that are, are pretty much, you know, irreversibly, you know, you know, in the state of failure. You do need to have a strategy for how you're going to take over the entire function of the heart. And that's where these total artificial hearts come in. There are more in the pipeline uh, being developed. Uh, I would say, though, you know, they they do you know have some modicum of success in getting patients to transplant, but they're not meant at current time as a substitute, you know, in and of itself, like a destination therapy long term such as the left ventricular assist devices are. So that's the main difference. They're still not a, you know, meant to be in indefinitely, whereas an LVAD, you can leave it indefinitely. Well, let's get to your book. I've been wanting to talk about that ever since I saw it on LinkedIn. Great. Uh, you have an amazing story to tell in there, uh, Heart to Beat, and I'm going to put a link in the show notes for um, for my listening audience to Thanks. order it. It's a great read. It's an easy read, uh, and it's Cardiac Surgeon's Inspiring Story of Success in Overcoming Adversity, The Heart Way. So I want to start with the title, Heart to Beat. Where did you come up with that? You know, I um, really had a fun, fun time coming up with ways to kind of use idioms or sayings uh, that we all have heard and, and and enjoy, you know, saying, but splicing in the word heart instead. So heart to beat is from obviously hard to beat. Uh, it's a quote from Babe Ruth where he says, it's hard to beat someone who never quits. And uh, I thought, well, that pretty much sums up my life <laughs> in a nutshell. And I, I thought it was very cool to substitute for the word heart because part of kind of my philosophy that I go into detail about in the book is, you know, think of our hearts, how they, they just do their job. They just keep beating and beating no matter what, no matter, you know, what state of mind you're in, what emotional, you know, state you're in, how, what your face does, just keep, keep doing their thing, just keep beating. And that's kind of the mindset or the, the idea, the concept that I wanted to get, get out there is, um, you know, as long as we just keep working hard and, you know, get back up on the horse, uh, when we have a failure or setback, you know, that's, that's half the battle. And, um, that's kind of where the title came from. I thought it was a nice, quick, you know, summation, uh, of, of, of the book of my life. And of course it has heart in it. So made perfect sense. <laughs> I love a comment that you put on your blog, uh, and that is Brian Lima. That's B-R-I-A-N, Lima, M-D, dot com. I, I suggest all my audience check it out and see some of the stuff that you've written there. But I love the line that you put on there from Shakespeare's The Tempest, where he wrote, the past is prologue. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you see that concept playing out in the context of your, your book? 
Well, you know, um, the, you know, past is prologue, meaning we learn from, you know, history teaches us what, you know, how things are likely to occur again. So if you repeat the same behaviors or practices that have not been successful in the past, then you're going to, you know, not have success in the future. In a similar, you know, vein, I think, you know, when I tasted success for the first time, whether it was on a test or uh, reaching a key milestone academically or my career, it was because I worked so hard at it. And, and it's once you have that, that proof of principle that, you know, you work hard and this is what happens, then you can sort of extrapolate that to the future because past is prologue. You keep doing that then it should happen again. Um, so that's how I, I view that, uh, that the classic quote from Shakespeare, which I love. It's so short. I mean, it's, it's the ones that are so masterfully written like that are so short. They always just, uh, I always pause and just reflect on, wow, you know, someone much, much smarter than I came up with that one, but it's, it just hits, you know, it just nails it. Brevity is the soul of uh, not only wit, but a lot of things. Yeah, that's right. That's right. The concept of selective amnesia. I love that. That is so good because it really is. It, it's easy, and I know I, I speak to the sales reps in my audience. It's e- and and I know surgeons that do this too. Of building a monument to your failure and not being able to move beyond that. Yeah, I, I, mindset is is so is foundational to so much of of what we can and can't do um, because we kind of limit ourselves before we act. We psych ourselves out, right? And uh, I always think of it as the you know. The NFL quarterback, you know, Brady being the quintessential, you know, future Hall of Famer who, you know, how many times have we watched, what was it, the Super Bowl against Atlanta where they were down by, you know, God knows how many points at half. Like, all right, this game's over. I mean, they, they played terribly and then they come out and win the game. Man, unbelievable. And it's like, like they forget how poorly they perform and they just, it's like they just hit reset and they're like, all right, I'm just going to not, you know, I'm, I'm just going to keep doing, doing what I know how to do. And have practiced and not let that, you know, uh, negatively impact my performance in the next half. And I, that's I, I love selective amnesia because, you know, people dwell so much on their failures, on their mistakes that it it, it sort of then creeps into this negative self-talk and you talk yourself out of success before you even go up at bat. I mean, it's uh, it's a it's a huge problem. H, hard work. E, eager. A, aligned R, resolute. T, thoughtfulness. Do you want to walk us through those real quick? Absolutely. So hard work, it's, it's, it's basically the first step. It's, it's the foundation for anything, for any endeavor. Uh, you have to work hard at it to be successful. To achieve mastery, you need hard work. Put in the time, the reps. Um, there's no way around that. Um, e is kind of a... There's a lot of things that can be, you know, entrepreneurship, um, having a, kind of that positive outlook on you're going to try to make the most out of the cards you're dealt. So that's kind of what I thought of as, as E. Um, a, aligned. Aligned with your moral compass, with your plan. What's the overarching strategy of what it is you want to do, why you want to do it, and how does what you're doing right now fit into that? Meaning don't waste time. Uh, everything should be intentional every day. have a plan for the grand plan, you know? So that's what I think aligned is and always taking the high road, you know, S- staying, you know, aligned with your moral compass, always, 
you know, never stepping on other people on the way up. Um, are resolute, meaning you're going to hit roadblocks, speed bumps, failures, whatever you want to call them. Um, but it's your you're not going to give up. You're going to keep going uh, no matter what. You're going to get back on the horse. And then the one that took me the longest to figure out um, was was the T, the thoughtfulness. Um, that's kind of, you know, self-awareness, being aware of what you're feeling, why you're feeling it, how you're being perceived by others, how what you're saying is being perceived by others, what impact it has, all of that. Um, that is, um, you know, a skill if you will, that it didn't really, I was in such a, you know, just game mode, you know, training for, you know, 10 years. I didn't, all that stuff didn't enter into my psyche. I was just like a, a machine in many ways, you know, I, I did all this work. I'm just going to get out there and, and operate and take care of patients. And that's it. Well, you know, it's a lot more challenging and sophisticated. There's a lot more to it than that because you have to now interact with teams. Um, you're, it's, you're entering a marketplace of business, right? So, how do you how do you get those those clients? How do you get those referrals? How you know all those things um, factor into that? So that's where the thoughtfulness piece comes in. When I saw that in the book, it reminded me of that Socrates quote: "The unexamined life is not worth living." And that that is a challenge, isn't it? Being uh, very self aware and always analyzing what we're doing and being thoughtful about what we're doing. It's so easy to see what others are doing, right? Uh, right. But to have that mindset of of seeing ourselves, kind of that ever-present mirror, so to speak. That's challenging. Very, very challenging. Yeah, that definitely is. What was it like writing a book? I mean, that's uh, – I know that can be really challenging for people, just getting all those thoughts down. To, uh, uh, how long did it take you? And take me even before that. Uh, what was the day you woke up and said, you know, I've got this idea yeah. and it needs to get out there on paper? Yeah, I. Um, it was – six or you know five or six years uh i had been uh give me a few months after i finished training uh, i had my took my first job in uh, in a practice a private practice in austin texas and uh i was a couple of months into that i was like 35 years old and uh randomly just totally randomly woke up in the middle of the night with all these ideas of all this stuff that we've been just talking about you know uh, you know, what I learned growing up and how much effort and, and hard work I had to put into every, you know, every step along the way, just scratching and clawing. And I, I think part of it, you know, to be honest, because I still don't really know where that came from. It's just one of these, I don't know, just surreal uh, events that occurred in my life that it just had to happen. And I, you know, but part of it, if I were to really kind of think about it, it would I felt like once I came up for air after being, you know, cooped up in residency and training and schooling for all that time, and I finally, you know, joined civilian life, and I kind of looked around. I was like, "Wow, there's a, there's a lot of people leaving uh, a lot on the table as far as talent is concerned, or, or or success or performance is concerned. They're just kind of going about it uh, lackadaisically, so to speak. They're just really not applying that. And I kept, I don't know, I just set, saw a lot of that. Some of that is cultural, you know, societal trends with social media and, uh, you know, being fixated with, uh, you know, overnight success and what's the shortcut? What's the, you know, how do I get this on demand? How do I get my Amazon Prime, you know, way of, of getting there? Right. And, uh, I think I just, my, my mind was like, no, 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 you gotta, you gotta, you gotta get the, get the word out on what, what, you know, what it's really all about. And so I felt like, 
this these ideas just kept coming and coming and i kept filling up pages of notes on my on my uh, my phone my smartphone and then finally um until you know i i kind of really didn't give it the priority it needed to just sit down and write this thing what took the longest was just organizing it sure. like okay what what's going to be a chapter like what what is this all you know i that was the hardest part and it wasn't until um you know i could find like a unifying theme like what's going to bring all this together and it was that hartway uh approach that i that i talk about in the book the one we just went through and that came about when i did the first heart transplant here on long island and um i had this you know it was a it was a big night for us you know it was the first one we were finally getting our opportunity to do it and a lot of people in the room you know it was just really you know a magical night and um, i took the old you know surgically excised the old heart um and i was getting ready to pass it off and it kept beating in my hands as i was as i took it out almost like wow you know and this was all caught on camera everyone in the room was like whoa like no one had seen that before and uh it was it was almost like this heart was like wait 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 you know i'm not you know put me back in coach you know like i'm not you know i'm not ready to quit <laughs> and uh it I kind of, you know, it was so amazing for, to see that and experience that. Did the heart, you know, put in the new heart and it did great. And, and I just reflecting on that, I was like, wow, I mean, you know, the heart way, like the heart just does not, I mean, even in like the worst situation, you know, and it clearly had outlived its its capability. It still didn't want to quit. It just was, it just was instinctually wanting to keep going. And uh, when I, when that clicked, it really facilitated me being able to sit down and kind of put down some organizational structure and then from them it built. Uh, and so over the course of a few months dedicating the time and it was painful, but um, it, I finally had a manuscript. <laughs> well, amazing work for your freshman attempt. I mean, it's just awesome. Thank you. No, I really, really uh, appreciate it. Great that. job. So you talk a lot about building a brand FBI negotiator, Chris Voss, you know, he, he parlayed a, a book on negotiating into the Black Swan Group and and just building his brand through that book. Do you have any designs on building a brand through the book, or are you one and done? You know, I honestly feel that I I well part of it. I was going to see what kind of what the reception was going to be for the book, and I think I'm I'm pleasantly surprised to be honest with the reception I've gotten so far. And um, I had this idea that I think. Uh, each of those chapters in the book could be a chapter, could be a book in and of themselves, you know? And, um, I think I could, I could foresee, uh, you know, you know, almost like a heart way for different specific fields or situations, you know, heart way for, for kids, for students, heart way for parents, heart way, for, you know, that sort of thing. Um, but I think there's still a few more books left in me. I just got to find the time. Sure. <laughs> it's, uh, it's hard to balance all that stuff. I imagine, your uh, your day gig is over a full time job. Yeah, yeah, it it, uh, it is challenging to say the least to find the time. But uh, you know, like anything else, you make something a priority, and you you just figure it out, right? Uh, you you come up with time that's inconvenient, you know, off hours, you know, things like that. But that's that's the there's the only way to do it. If something's important enough to you. 
then you you figure it out. You you adapt and overcome, right? Uh, as 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 it goes to um, to make it work. The more I reflected upon some of the stuff you've written, I mean, we're all building a brand, and that brand is us. Whether it's the device reps that listen to the show, or the surgeons, or or anybody, any advice to to people out there on what that looks like? What does building your brand uh, look like? Yeah. So I think. I talk about the three A's, which is uh, commonly discussed in, in entrepreneurial text, you know, uh, books and uh, being affable, available and able. So I think, you know, you want to be someone that people enjoy interacting with and talking to. Right. You can't you got to be someone that um, you, you nurture that part of your personality that, you know, you don't you don't come across as condescending or you're you're there. You're positive. You're you have a good energy about you. Um, available, meaning you're, you're, you know, you're Johnny on the spot. You, when, when, when you're called upon, you are there, right? Uh, my favorite reps that I've worked with in, in various, um, device, you know, uh, options that we have for the, the stuff that I do, it's the reps that are, you know, you say, Hey, you know, I, I know I'm just calling it late in the day. I'm adding on a case and whatever. Can you, and they're, they're there in a minute ready to, you know, to help out. Um, so being available. And then obviously able, right? You know, it, it, it could be, you could be smiling and really pleasant to be around and, and you're there, but if you don't know what you're doing, <laughs> so knowing, you know, knowing your stuff, right? Really, really knowing your stuff um, is key, obviously. Um, those, those things are key, but it is challenging. And for me, it was a humbling, humbling process because I never thought of that part of, you know, what I do until I actually was doing it, meaning they didn't teach me in medical school or residency how to be an entrepreneur, how to how to get your, you know, how to make your brand or how to have a marketable brand, how how to get referrals, how to interact with referring providers to want that, uh, them to send your business, you know, send you a business. Like, how do you do that? Like, and I that was a rude awakening and I had to learn it on the fly, uh, in practice. Um, so, uh, I, I think those are the key, the key things is, is being available, affable and able. Great stuff. Tell my audience, what are the outlets that they can take advantage of to order your book? My book is available anywhere books are sold. So Amazon, Barnes and Noble, um, and, uh, the website, as you, as you had stated, is, is just www.brianlimamd.com. It also has links there for, uh, for, for buying the book as well. So this is a crazy segue, but you have probably the cutest dog <laughs> I've ever seen. And I just, how did you convince that dog to look at the camera for those pictures? I, yeah. I can never get my dog to look anywhere near the camera during a she picture. She is a natural. She's a, 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 a breed of dog that I had not previously knew, uh, known about she's a um, catahoula she was a rescue but she's a catahoula mix of some kind and a catahoula for those that don't know i didn't know <laughs> they're these spotted dogs uh they could be light they could be dark with spots and they have these striking light eyes and uh she's kind of white with spots and these striking blue eyes and just you know a natural for the camera she loves the camera she's the only dog i've ever seen that you whip the camera out to take a picture. She doesn't, you know, run for the hills. She's like poses. <laughs> she loves it. <laughs> uh, you know, so yeah, she's, uh, she has her own Instagram page. She's going to be more famous than my wife and I put together and uh, exponentially. So she's, uh, 
She's she's a hoot. She's very photogenic. There was this great picture of you and your wife, and I'm I'm looking at the dog. <laughs> yeah, so, I believe it, man. I totally do. Amazing, amazing <laughs> eyes. So, what do you what do you like to do outside the OR? Well, uh, I'm still I'm still a gym rat, uh, as I said. I mean, I'm my this whole heart surgery thing is Plan B, to be honest. Plan A was football. Uh, that unfortunately did not go f- much further beyond high school. <laughs> so, but uh, for that, I I spent inordinate amounts of time in the weight room and trying to, you know, make the varsity team and this, that, and the other. So I, I learned at a, I, I developed at a very early age, a, a true uh, passion for being in the gym. So I, whenever I can, I like to go work out. It's, it's a stress reliever for me, kind of let off some steam. I can't still do the knucklehead stuff, you know, I used to do back in the day, you know, crazy powerlifting because for all the device reps there, I mean, uh, you know, probably need shoulder replacements and knee replacements and all, all everything in between. Um, I love doing it. It feels the endorphins that you release after that. It's just great. So I love working out when I can. Uh, obviously, spending time with my wife. We like going to, well, you know, pre-COVID going out to restaurants. <laughs> I guess you could still do it now, but it's not, you know, not exactly the same yet. Hopefully, it will be soon. But, um, yeah, that's – those are generally the kind of things we're in travel, which, again, is also a little bit on, you know, limited at this point. But we love traveling, too, seeing new places. Um, that's That never gets old. Speaking of stress relief, the listeners to my show have careers that are fairly mm-hmm. stressful. Uh, any advice apart from the gym that you can offer to keep them out of your waiting room or uh, out of your OR? Sure. No, I'm glad you brought that up. So, I mean, maintaining heart health is is it's probably the one thing that you can do to maximize your you know your lifespan, you know, uh, and and to maximize that quality of life that you're going to have. And uh, it's it's pretty. You know, when you actually list it out, it's relatively easy. It's Life Simple 7, which the American Heart Association um, does a really great job of summarizing. And it's basically the things that we all can do to minimize the risk of getting heart disease. And there's things like, you know, exercising on a regular basis, a heart-healthy diet, um, not smoking, not vaping, you know, keeping your blood sugar levels in check, seeing your doctor on a regular basis so that, you know, your blood pressure's, you know, under control, your cholesterol levels are under control. Uh, all these things are key and, uh, you know, readily achievable by almost anybody. They're not, you know, these aren't uh, lofty pie in the sky things that, you know, only a select few, everybody, everybody could get these things done and it's just making them a priority. So you don't you you definitely don't want to have to see someone like me if you could avoid it in a professional setting at least. <laughs> do you ever on your way to the OR and you pass the orthopods in the in the lounge? Do you ever say to yourself, "Man, if I only had a hammer, a saw, I could do so much more." <laughs> uh, you know, well, I'm not going to lie. I, you know, but people often mistake me for when they don't know me or whatever. They're like, "Oh, so you an orthopedic surgeon?" I kind of have the ortho look. Uh, to me, whatever that means. Uh, <laughs> so people often think I'm an orthopod. Uh, but hey, you know, I use a saw. I use a sternal saw, right? You know, and so there's a little bit of, I, I deal with the bones, uh, you know, so I can uh, I can hang with the orthopod. I love orthopedic surgery. Well, Dr. Lima, I love the content you're putting out there. Uh, thank you for taking time out of your life to, to put your life into this book. And I really appreciate you coming on the show just to share your life story with us. Very inspirational uh, work that you're doing. I really appreciate it. And again, uh, it's um, it's great coming on. I love talking about this stuff, and, and I really appreciate you inviting me on. So it's been wonderful.
What an amazing conversation. I was watching a Seinfeld episode the other day where George was convinced that his date had an eating disorder, and he tried to keep her at the table after dinner to make sure she wasn't going to go to the restroom to uh, to to deal with what she had just eaten. And he grabbed her by the hand and said, no, let's just sit here and digest this. And, you know, that's exactly what I feel right now. I just want to sit and digest it. Really great stuff from Dr. Lima. One thing I will comment on that jumped off the page at me, I mean, he was right. You could write a book on each one of these. You could easily do a podcast on each one of these uh, in that heart mnemonic. But the one in the middle jumped out at me, and that was alignment. Alignment. You know, this job can so easily turn into this tyranny of the urgent, crisis of the moment scenario. You wake up in the morning, you got 10 things on your to do list, 20 things more get added throughout the day. You come up at the end of the day, you didn't get anything done that you wanted to get done, and you're exhausted and you just lather, rinse, repeat. So, without some intentional planning and activity realignment towards some set goals, you can truly end up like that line from the Pink Floyd song of suddenly you wake up to find 10 years have got behind you and no one told you where to run. You missed the starting gun. Well, you don't have to be that way. You didn't miss the starting gun. You can start now. Let's just expand that word intentionality for a second. It means just that. You have to sit down and intentionally do something. It will not happen on its own. You have to intentionally sit at your desk. Just start out with some things that you want to see happening over the next 10, 20, 30 years. I mean, for example, let's go all the way forward and work our way back, right? You have to align some activities in place now as a 1099 to help pay for your possible assisted living one day, right? Who's going to pay for that? Your kids? Check the prices on that stuff. It's crazy. So that means you need to align activities in place now, set some goals to help make sure that's going to be taken care of, You know, whether it's rental properties, anything that can provide passive income, on and on and on. Just that starts with the goal. And then filling in the blanks on what does that activity look like? Nearer term stuff, right? Let's say down the road, 10 years from now, five years from now, 15, whatever. You want to transition to a a corporate gig. You want to go independent. Repfreedom.com. You want to be a distributor. You want to be a podcaster. Uh, These things just don't happen all on their own. They happen as a result of you aiming at something, intentionally sitting down and saying, okay, I want to see this happen, that happen, and then align your activities towards that goal. You know, in a lot of ways, this is like a hike. I mean, first you have to decide where to go, and then it's kind of simple. Just start walking. You know, once you've aligned your activities and set some of these goals. You still do your job, but you always walk intentionally towards those goals. Stay focused. There's going to be billboards all around you uh, trying to distract you, signs saying, hey, look at this dead tree. No, you just keep walking and keep looking at those things uh, and keep intentionally walking forward. And like anything, and I'm going to quote Dr. Lima, like anything in life, you make something a priority, you'll just figure it out. Uh, You're going, I don't have enough time to do any of this stuff, to sit down and come up with some of these goals and work on intentionally aligning my activities. Well, you know what? Again, to quote him, if it's important to you, you will adapt and overcome. So I encourage you, you can do this. 
if I can do it, and I'm the most easily distracted person on the planet, if I can do this and sit down and start to intentionally align some activities towards some goals that I have, that I have helped hone with the interaction of people that I know and trust, then you can do it too. I promise you, you can do it. And let's let's try this week. Like I said, you have not missed the starting gun. Let's get started on it this week. And we got some tools coming down the road to help you in just that. So sometime this week, I would encourage all of you to carve out some time to go online and to order Dr. Lima's book. I told my wife today, I want to write a book one day just so that when somebody asks me, hey, where can I get it? I can come back and say, wherever books are sold. I just love that line for some reason. So wherever books are sold, please go out and get this book, read it, digest it, and I promise you it's going to change a lot of what you're doing right now for the better. We can all use continual refinement, and books like this to me are an awesome tool to accomplish that goal. So as we go into this week, let's all be hard workers. Let's be entrepreneurial. Let's be properly aligned and of resolve. Let's be thoughtful. And most importantly, let's all be safe.